he not, as we recount all of his goodness and mercy to us. Well, brothers and sisters, it's difficult sometimes when I'm wrapping up, uh, when I've finished a sermon series, to know which one to go to next. I always plan these things ahead because I buy all of my uh, study materials and things and start prepping and getting ready for a new sermon series. And uh, there's so many options and things that would be helpful maybe for us at the time that we are in our congregation. But I must say that this time I have had uh, a strong desire for some time to preach from the Song of Solomon. And uh, it's been something that I've been uh, convinced about that, that we need a song at this time in the situations that we're in. I think right now the whole church needs a song. We've been dragging along in our devotion and our service to God. We've been irritated and annoyed by many things in life all around us. But we don't as much need calls to repent right now, but rather the setting forth of the gracious relationship of our God who sustains his people and who loves his people. I think the entire church needs this. I think the Reformed Church especially needs this, and that those churches that are out of the Reformation have probably needed this for a long time, this kind of, of, of message. We need a song, an excellent song, about love, about beautiful love. Not the duty of love so much. We're getting that in our evening series with the Ten Commandments. It's important. But we need also and even more so, about something about being loved, about the love and about the love that we already have for our Lord that He has given us at our conversion that we don't even recognize sometimes. That by grace, that we are a new creation in Christ and we're able to love the one that we once despised. So today I am introducing this song to you. It's the Song of Solomon. It's just an introduction today. I'm going to show you what the Holy Spirit says about this song in the first verse. And then I'm going to unpack it. Before I have our very short scripture reading, I'll just mention to you that um, perhaps you're thinking particularly about the resurrection of our Lord today. And it was very interesting to me that I was just yesterday I was reading a, a, a contemporary rabbi who is lamenting about the fact that at the Passover, they have a tradition where they sing the Song of Solomon, or they read it at the Passover. And he was lamenting because he said, nobody knows why. And uh, the reason they don't know why is because like the churches, the Jews around the middle of the 1800s did the same thing that we did. They abandoned the view of the Song of Solomon that the church, both the Jews in the Old Testament and even the ones that were, they're not really following God because they rejected the Messiah, but the ones that were after them in the New Testament times and those of us who, are, who receive the Messiah and, and believe in Him, um, they rejected the interpretation of the Song of Solomon as being about our relationship with, with our Lord, that, that we're His bride. They, they rejected that for other interpretations. 
And so he was lamenting because they have this tradition that, that speaks to that of this being something at the time of Passover when God's people were, were brought out by the Lamb to, to go forth and serve him. And now they don't know why there would be this song that they, they would read about, uh, about marriage or, or about relation, just horizontal relationships. It doesn't make sense to them. We're going to unpack this song today a little bit, this, this first verse. So here is our scripture reading. Give careful attention. It, it is very, very short. It's verse 1, Song of Solomon 1.1. 1, 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word and bless us as we hear it. The Song of Solomon opens with a declaration that this song in our scriptures called the Song of Solomon is the Song of Songs. That means that it is, by God's assessment, the best of all songs. Song of Songs is the Hebrew way of stating the superiority of this song to all others. You know how the Hebrews speak that way. We're familiar with it in our Bible. We talk about the Lord of Lords. We talk about the one who is the Lord over all lords, the superior one to all other lords. We speak of the King of Kings. We speak of His majesty and authority that is supreme to all others. In the most sacred place in the tabernacle, what is it called? The Holy of Holies. And when we want to talk about things that are empty, and very, very empty, then Solomon himself says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is the ultimate vanity to live life without God. That's what he talks about in Ecclesiastes. So to say that the Song of Solomon is the greatest song of all is quite a claim that it's the Song of Songs. 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and that his songs were 1,005. He was said to be the wisest man who ever lived, of course, apart from Christ, the greater than Solomon. Many of his proverbs are in our Bibles. But here we have in this place a song in our Bibles, one of the 1,005 songs that he wrote. And it's not only his best, his best, but it's the best of all songs. It's better than all the Psalms that David wrote. It's better than the songs that Moses wrote. It's better, it is the song of songs. And note well that it's not a collection of songs here. Some of the modern commentators, they go all over the place. They don't agree with each other, but some of them say, oh, this is a collection of a whole bunch of different songs. There were, uh, one, one woman claimed that they were written by uh, feminists that were wanting to have uh, more sexual revolution and that they all gathered a collection of these ancient songs back then and it got in the Bible somehow. And, uh, you know, they, they have all kinds of crazy things that they come up with. And they have where it's a progressive story with a shepherd that fails to uh, win, or he tries to win the bride, and, and then Solomon comes along, and she gets interested in him, and then the shepherd wins her back instead, and all, all kinds of different uh, crazy interpretation. But this song stands alone as more excellent than all the rest. It is a single song. It is the song, the whole thing, of songs. So we can do away with anyone that claims an interpretation of it being multiple collection of different songs that were kind of hodgepodge put together 
in some way. The superiority of this song to all others is not questionable. The conclusion is not based on the ever-shifting opinions of men. If you did a popular survey, I'm sure that this wouldn't be in the top 10. But we all know that what is popular is seldom what is best, seldom what is excellent. The superiority of this song is objective because it is not according to the assessment of man, but according to the Holy Spirit. It's the declaration of God's Spirit who spoke by the prophets, in this case by Solomon. This book has never met with any serious challenge as to its place in the canon of sacred scripture, and the Spirit does speak to God's people through. It is God-breathed. It is not at last the word of men, but the word of God that effectively works in those who believe, and that has been the true testimony of this song. God himself declares this song is the song of songs. Now, what makes a song like this, what makes it superior to all other songs? Well, first, it is about a subject that is superior to all other subjects. A quick look at this song shows that it is about love. It is about the deep love between a man and his wife, his bride. The Bible tells us that love is more excellent than faith and hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul also calls it more excellent than all the spiritual gifts, he says love is superior to faith and hope. He says, and now abide faith, hope, and love. But what? You know how to finish it. The greatest of these is love. But a deeper look at this psalm shows that it is not just about any man and his wife. The marriage with the best and the highest love is the marriage that is between Christ and his bride, the church. This would not be called the Song of Songs if it was celebrating just an ordinary marriage between two ordinary humans. It is called the Song of Songs because it's talking about the marriage between Christ and his bride as it has been understood by the people of God. There is no love so great as this love, because it is a redeeming love, and it is a divine love, yet toward unworthy, sinful human beings that have been transformed. The Son of God stooped to the lowest place to come and to win his bride. He came forth as a conquering one, mighty to save, becoming one of us and going to the cross for our sins that he might redeem us and bring us up out of the mire. While we were yet sinners, reprehensible to him and to his father, he secured our pardon by pouring out his life for us. And then he elevates us to be with him in glory and to be his bride forever. He clothes us and transforms us so that we become lovely. Perhaps you've seen that before, where a woman gets married and she enters into a good marriage with a faithful man and she becomes more beautiful. His his grace and kindness toward us is the great display of love that is the delight of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the highest expression of gracious love that ever has been, ever will be, that is shown right here 
And I say that even the, the triune God looks at what the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has done and sees this love and delights in it. Because nowhere is love displayed so well as it is in Christ with his bride. The most excellent song then is about the most excellent love. And the most excellent love is the love revealed in God's son's marriage to his lowly bride, the church, whom he has made his princess. I'll have more to say about this being the subject of this most excellent song as we move along. But first, I want to look at what else this song makes it qualify to be the most excellent song of all songs. Yes, it's about the most excellent subject, but it is also superior because it speaks better about this most excellent of all subjects than any other song. Okay, how so? Well, it speaks truly about it. A song that speaks falsely or that misrepresents the object that it's speaking about that even perhaps exaggerates or distorts in some way, cannot be a most excellent song. This song, keep in mind, is the most excellent. It does not exaggerate. It does not exaggerate the depths of love and the delight that Christ has in his bride. It is not setting forth things that are in any way, in any shadow of the case, not true. The song of songs is a true song. So keep that in mind. It also speaks in a way that can be understood by those who are appointed to hear with understanding, those who are the bride. She can understand this song. It may not be clear to everyone. Surely this song is not clear to many. The only ones who can learn it are the ones, as we saw in Revelation, who have the Spirit of God and follow the Lamb. It's not clear, though, even to them all at once. It's not because of a defect, however, in the song that it's not clear. It's because it takes time for all of us coming out of sin as we do, coming out of defilement, to grow into the full understanding of this song. It's not something that happens all at once, that you read it once and you say, oh, I get it, I totally understand now. You never can say that as long as you're in this world. It's a song that is meant, in fact, to foster the development of that rich understanding of the love that we have with Christ, to help us see more and more of that love than we do now. And people grow in different ways. Some people see something like this sooner than others do, even with respect to their maturity otherwise as a Christian. Some people, maybe they're very strong in the battle, a young man that goes out and he's ready to go to war, but he doesn't see this thing of love so clearly at that time. And then later on, that begins to develop, he begins to grow. Someone else comes in, maybe they've had a very hard life and, and they see the love of the lamb like the others can't see it at all. And they grow up in that and, and they have to grow in other ways of learning to be a sturdy soldier and to stand up for Christ and things like that. God doesn't work with us all in the same way. But this psalm works in all of us, you see. Wherever we are, it works in us to bring us along and mature us and to teach us what we need to to learn. Good poetry, you see, does that when it is understood. It opens your eyes to see things that you didn't see before. When you spend time with a good poem and you you, you meditate on it and you look at it, then you begin to see the world and the way that the poem describes it, things that you never noticed before. 
A photographer can do that too. He takes a picture and he, he highlights something. He puts light on something and, and it brings out something. And you say, that's really beautiful. And you, you've driven by it a hundred times and you never saw it the way that now you see it. That's, that's what art does. That's what poetry does. And you see, this is a song that can, can speak to all of us. It brings out the beauty of this love and puts it in the light whereby we can benefit from it. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. The saints are able to comprehend. It helps them to comprehend what is the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ. That's what we desire to see. Now, surely if God's Spirit tells us that this song is the song of songs, then we would do well to spend time with it. Don't despair of spending time with it. Don't say, well, it hasn't really helped me that much in my life. Well, perhaps it's because you haven't spent the time that you need. Poetry takes time to digest. You, you say, I don't like poetry. You read it one time. Oh, I didn't, no, I didn't get anything out of it. A cursory glance will be of little use when, of, of a song like this. It may even do you more harm than good. It may lead you into some silly notions about things. We, we need to read and reread this song. We need to meditate on it and pray over it. I can tell you that for the last probably, I don't know, five months or so, I've been doing that quite regularly, going over and over and over it. And the richness just keeps coming out more and more and more. Things that I had never appreciated, things that I had never seen that are appreciated to the way that I should. You need to meditate on it. You need to pray through it. You need to... Um, to think hard on it, turn it over in your mind. It will be of inestimable value because it is about a subject that is of inestimable beauty and benefit to the people of God. Furthermore, we need to look to God to help us to understand it. That's another thing. No matter how good you might be at analyzing poetry, you might be a, an academic who's able to digest all the poems and you spend all the time in them, you study, you won't get anything out of this unless you know Christ. As already mentioned, it is spiritually discerned. Like the song of the Lamb in Revelation 14.3, it is a song that none but the redeemed can learn. It will be an enigma. It will be a puzzling thing. And that's evident from the commentaries that are out there. The unbelieving commentary. They speculate and they go all over and they just miss it. They miss the point. The person who is not born again cannot understand the love of Christ. For the natural man, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not. It's like what the believer is talking about here is like a, some kind of artificial thing they're talking about, some kind of pious dream. It, it's not real. It's not of substance to their minds. The natural man cannot understand. Some of the finest expositors have said that the, that the most mature of Christians are the only ones who can actually understand this psalm. I think they err in saying that. I think that they mean that only they can fully understand it, perhaps, because that's how it's been for them. It's taken them years and years, and they know others. It's taking them years to understand it. But it's childlike faith that is the key that unlocks this song. That means that even a little child with faith can understand more than an academic with all of his letters and learning that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves me 
is a truth more profound and rich when understood by the Spirit than it can be understood by all of the unbelieving academics with all of their wisdom and learning all put together in a big heap. That little child that knows the Lamb, that is married and part of the Lamb's bride, has a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of the things of which this psalm, this song of Solomon speaks. Yes, indeed, the song of Solomon is the song of songs in the same way that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This is the song of songs. The Spirit of God says so. Only the bride of Christ who experiences love can see that. So this helps, and this song helps us to see it more fully and more richly. That's why it's given to us. We note from our text that it is not only called the Song of Songs, but that it is also said to be Solomon's song. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, what does it mean that it's Solomon's? Does it mean that he wrote it? Does it mean that it's about him? Does it mean that it belongs to him? Well, well, perhaps all of that. First, that he wrote it. He probably wrote it. We believe that he wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and this song fits right in with those books. Just think about how wonderfully it fits in. His focus. What is Solomon's focus? It's sort of a general thing. His books are very different from each other, but the focus is always on the supremacy of God. In all things, seeking the things that are above and not the things on the earth. In Proverbs, he taught us that everyday wisdom begins with the fear of God. Did he not? The the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he taught us that all of life is vanity, as I already mentioned. He used a similar phrase to Song of Songs, saying, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. His conclusion is that life is utterly empty, Unless we walk with the Lord, receiving the good things of life from Him, walking with Him, and keeping His commandments. Life without God, he tells us in Ecclesiastes, even if you have 1,000 virgins as your wives, even if you have learning and culture that surpasses everyone else around you in all the world, so that people come to learn from you, even if you have endless riches and endless precious things so that even silver is no longer valuable because you have so much, it is all an empty vapor, he says, without God. This is Solomon's emphasis. So it is no surprise that now in the Song of Solomon, his is a song about the Lamb and our relationship with Him the one that he calls the Song of Psalms. It speaks of the love between Christ and his bride. Second, when the Spirit says that it is Solomon's, it suggests that it is also about him in some way. It is about him in the way that Solomon's kingdom was about him. And you know that that's not ultimately exclusively about him. He was the son of David. But the son of David was Jesus Christ. It's ultimately about him. His name is Solomon, means Prince of Peace, but Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, supreme. So the Song of Songs is not about Solomon the man, ultimately, but it's about the Son of Man, the Prince of Peace, the King of Glory. 
He sat on the throne of David and he had his king, his queen. But the throne of David did not ultimately belong to Solomon, for it was Christ for whom that throne was intended. Solomon was a shepherd of Israel as David his father. But true, the true shepherd is the one who came and gave his life for his sheep. So yes, the song is about Solomon in a cursory way, but it is actually about Christ, his bride, and the church. I don't even think we can exactly call it typology. It's more allegory than typology. More about that in a moment. Third, when the Spirit says that it is Solomon's song, it, is, it also suggests that it belongs to him. Well, yes, inasmuch as Paul's writings belong to him and David's belong to him. And inasmuch as those writings belong to all of the people of God who receive them, they are our writings, our scripture, as Paul said, all things are for you. And they're given to us for our benefit and for our understanding. Those who wrote them did so by the Spirit of God for the church, so that in the end, their writings are from God and belong to the people of God who are in covenant with him in all ages. This song of all songs is more timeless than any other. You don't have anything here about ceremonial sacrifices, purification. Usually when there's any talk about marriage and all those things, you know, even in Proverbs, the perverted woman says, I have purified myself and I've made my bed ready and all this sort of, there's nothing of any of that. This could be any time in the history of God's people, this song speaks into the lives of, of his people. So it's given, it is our song as much as anyone else's song in the covenant. The reality is that this song then is an allegory about Christ and his church and the love that is between them. The principal characters here speak of it as an allegory. You have Solomon and you have the Shulamite. These are allegorical names, though Solomon, of course, was actually named Solomon. But in Hebrew, their names are Shilamon, that's Solomon, and Shulamith. It is the masculine and the feminine form of the same word, respectively, the prince of peace and the princess of peace. That's why I say these are allegorical. We don't know of a wife of Solomon that was named the princess of peace. It's like Christian and Christiana in the Pilgrim's Progress. There is no queen with this name. So you, that's how you see it's an allegory. The, the Christian represents Christians and Christiana represents Christian's wife. So we have here then that Shilamah, Solomon, and Shulamith, wife of Solomon, Shilamah, Shulamoth represents Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and Shulamith represents the church, who is his wife, the Princess of Peace. Besides that, in this song, you have the watchmen, who are the leaders of the church. You have the mother, who is uh, the whole church, that she sort of begets herself as she brings forth more children. She's multiplying and increasing because of her union that she has with the, with, uh, the, the Lord. And you have the daughters of Jerusalem, those disciples who are gathered in, sometimes from other places and brought to there, and, and they, they learn and they grow, and, they, and they're brought to love the husband with the rest of the bride that they become a part of as we all are brought together in Christ. 
The whole purpose of the allegory is to set forth the beautiful love between the prince of peace and the princess of peace, his bride. It does it in the very best way that it can, as I've already described before, by poetry that is able to speak beyond mere statement and precept and definition. You see, we need statement, precept, and definition, that sort of thing. But we also need poetry. God gives us poetry because it brings these things to a height to which they can't be brought by mere precept. We need a song. The allegory of love between husband and wife illustrates and exhibits what is beyond it. The love of Christ and His church. Now, don't let allegorophobia, fear of allegory, rob you of the Song of Solomon as a beautiful allegory. I made that word up. Allegorophobia. Uh, It's very clear what I'm talking about. The Scripture is full of allegory, and we shouldn't be afraid of allegory. There's nothing wrong with allegory. There's something wrong with the wrong use of allegory, but there's nothing wrong with allegory itself. The parables of Jesus are allegories where you have a sower sowing seed. It's not talking about a sower sowing seed. It's talking about a man sowing the gospel, preaching the word of God. And you have the seed on the packed pathway. That's not about seed on the packed pathway. It's about people with hard hearts that are trampled on in the world that the seed never grows and is eaten by birds. It's lost as soon as they hear it. You have seed that lands on the ground with stone just beneath the surface that takes root immediately and springs up and then is dried up by the sun. Withers because it has no depth, no root. Representing those who receive the word with gladness. And then because of persecution and other things, turn away. Then you have the ground with the weeds that grows up with the weeds, but is choked out, representing those who receive the gospel, but cling to the things of the world so that they never do really receive the gospel. The word never grows up and never bears real fruit. And then finally, there is the good ground where the word is sown, where there's true saving faith and the seed grows and bears fruit. This is allegoric scripture. And it would be wrong to take it literally as a lesson about farming. That someone says, oh, I've got my farming manual here. And they go out with the parable of the sower and say, I have to avoid sowing on the rocks and on the path. I have to make sure that there's no weeds here. Well, yeah, I guess it would have some value for it. But that's not what it's about. That is not the intention for which it was given. We want to use the intention for which something is given. We don't need to be afraid if it's an allegoric intention. Jesus himself tells us the meaning of it. And he tells us that it's a guide for our understanding of other parables. He also tells us what I mentioned before, that we have to have the Spirit of God to properly understand the song. You can see how effective these allegoric passages are at setting forth truth in a way that is more more impressionable, that's more accessible, that's more, that's more gripping, that, that is able to mature and develop. How, how much better to speak, for example, of the Lord as our shepherd who leads us besides the still waters and into green pastures than just to say, God provides for us. You see, I, I'd rather have a picture of a shepherd leading his sheep, not so that I can go and learn how to take care of sheep, but so I can learn about my Lord. The point is that when a scripture is allegoric, 
we're, we're wrong to interpret it literally. And when it's not allegoric, then we're wrong to turn it into some kind of an allegory or to find an allegory where it's not intended. We modern folks are just terrified by allegory. We are allegorophobic. Perhaps it's because there's been a problem with allegorizing in, in, past, in the past. Some of the fathers, like Origen, he, he would take scriptures that were perfectly plain and start adding allegorical meanings in a way that perverted them. That's not what we're talking about here. These ones would decide, for example, that Goliath represented the flesh and that David represented the spirit. That was one of the interpretations they had. And then they draw out all these things about the flesh and the spirit fighting with each other. And, you know, like it talks about in Galatians. It's a true thing, but it's not what David and Goliath is about. And they, and they bring that out to, uh, in, in all kinds of ways. And then, oh, the five stones. You know, maybe they're a Calvinist. <laughs> I've heard anybody do this one. But the five points of Calvinism. David's five stones. You know, they slay the giant with the five points of Calvinism. You, you know, whatever it is, they come up with just whatever happens to be there. The, the Arminian says, no, 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 it's the five points of Arminianism, those stones. And they, they have a quarrel and debate about it. It was about neither one. What was the sling? You know, they just, they, they go on with these these uh, allegoric, wrong kind of allegoric interpretations. Some would take also a parable that is an allegory, and then they load on all kinds of things that are not intended to be taken in some special, significant way. Like the Good Samaritan. This is one that was actually done. The two coins that he used to pay the innkeeper. What are those two coins? What do you think? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That was one of the favorite ones. He left that innkeeper with baptism and Lord's Supper to take care of this guy. And then they have all these, again, they, they go all over the place. Sometimes they bring out some stuff. It is actually maybe even helpful, but it's not what the passage is talking about. Some have done such things with the Song of Solomon as well. You know, something like the, the Shulamites' two breasts. As soon as you have two of something, you get all, all worked up. Oh, it's the law and the gospel. It's the New Testament and the Old Testament. Those are ones that they actually did. Like, where do you get this? What, how, do you, how does this come? It's the Word and the Spirit. It, it could be anything. Such fanciful interpretation of the Song of Solomon, are sometimes, those fanciful interpretations, are sometimes used to discredit the allegoric interpretation. To say, oh, we can't use, we can't use allegory. People, people go all wrong with that. They don't, they don't use it the right way. It's all, well, yeah, there's a danger. That you can go, and, and people have done, they have done that, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't turn the, the parable of the sower into a farming manual because uh, people use some of the parts wrong and, and went too far with interpreting them. You don't reject the allegorical understanding of the Good Samaritan because somebody used the two coins in the wrong way. Nor should you throw out the allegoric interpretation of the Song of Solomon because someone or a whole lot of someones went beyond this simple and beautiful allegory that speaks to God's people and that is intended to speak to God's people to all sorts of fanciful imaginations. I say that this is a modern problem because it was not until about the mid-1800s that almost before that almost every interpreter took the Song of Solomon as an allegory. You're hard-pressed to find anyone that didn't. The Jews understood it as marriage between God and Israel, and often even the Messiah 
in Israel, the Messiah who is to come. They very often understood it that way, always as an allegory, almost always. And uh, then the church, the church fathers, they understood it that way again until about the mid-1850s. Everybody went wrong when they started doing higher criticism and they came up with all these, they started speculating about where it came from and, that oh, this must have originated from here, from there, and whatever. We understand it with fuller revelation now as an allegory of the marriage between Christ and his church. I told you about the article I read earlier by the rabbi who was lamenting that people that in the Passover tradition, they use this Song of Solomon and, and nobody knows why. Because the Jews did the same thing. In the mid-1850s or so, they reject the allegoric interpretation and just turned it into, oh, it's just a song about two people that love each other. It, nothing more. Indeed, this very allegory of the Lord is married to his people is not something that is strange or unusual. We might have a harder time with saying that the Song of Solomon says this if we didn't know that God uses that marriage as an allegory all the time. He uses it regularly. If we were just, if it was the only place that he did that, we might have a hard time. And you see the way the Song of Solomon does, it, it, it doesn't present it, it doesn't load it up with saying, now this is an allegory and start setting it out as an allegory. It just gives it to us. It's much more beautiful. It just gives it to us. This is, this is the way it is. And then it's obvious, should be obvious that it's an allegory. Well, let's think about that. Where does the scripture talk about this then? I said it talks about it all over the place with marriage as an allegory for uh, our relationship with Christ. Well, we saw it last week, didn't we? Our Psalm of Focus, Psalm 45. What about Isaiah 54, 5? We read it in the call to worship last week. God told his people, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And what's it saying? That the woman that was barren can now bring forth children. Because she's married to who? Her Redeemer. The, her Maker is her husband. God says that. He's not afraid to call us, call us that. In Ezekiel 16, the whole chapter, and in Hosea, almost the whole book, the Lord speaks of Israel and also of Judah as his wife, whom he took in, whom he found in her defilement and whom he beautified and who became lovely and was adorned with jewels and beautiful clothing and then became a harlot. And her beauty started going off to the other nations. And my wife, she, my bride. And he, he speaks of that. And, and in Matthew 22, 1-10, the call to enter the kingdom is described as a call to a wedding feast. Matthew 25, 1-13, we have the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were able to enter in because they had oil, the Spirit, and others who were not. In Ephesians 5, Paul teaches about marriage in connection with our relationship of Christ, with the relationship of Christ to his church. He explains, I speak of Christ and the church. He says that specifically. In Jeremiah 6.2, the Lord explains that I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Right? That's, that's Song of Solomon. He likened his daughter of Zion, the people of God, to a lovely and delicate woman. That's the Song of Solomon all, all the way through. And then Revelation 21, you have the angel who says to John in verse 9, at the consummation of all things, come and I will show you the bride. And then you have the city of Jerusalem. 
that comes down from heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. Like in the wedding where you have the presentation of the bride and everyone turns around and there she is coming down. The presentation of the bride, Christ presents his bride without spot or blemish. This is a beautiful thing. If our Lord does not hesitate to use marriage as an allegory of his relationship with his church, then we should not be afraid to recognize this allegory when it is presented to us in the Song of Songs. Surely we don't have the situation here where Solomon, the man who has persuaded us that without God, marriage, riches, honor, success, learning, and everything else is vanity, all those things without God, that that he would then turn around and give us the Song of Songs This just about human relationship under the sun. It'd be the best marriage under the sun, but just under the sun relationship that he said was all vanity. Why would he do that? He has labored to persuade us that we find no meaning apart from God and then gives us this ultimate song without reference to God? I don't think so. But many modern writers make it a mere collection of love poems. Some even interpret it as a sex manual. It's equivalent to using the parable of the sower as a a farming manual. It doesn't work. Certainly, the Bible does not teach that sexual relations and holy marriage are wicked or unholy. That's not the reason for embracing this allegorical interpretation. The marriage bed is said to be holy when it is undefiled. But to say that the Song of Songs is about nothing more than love between a man and a woman is to grossly miss The point, the whole point, and the reason that this book is in our Bibles, and the reason that that Solomon wrote it. A literal interpretation just does not work for the Song of Solomon. Think about it. Does Solomon the king have a wife who got overexposed to the sun because her brothers were angry with her and made her work in the vineyard? Does that fit with what we know about Solomon? And often it's thought to be maybe Pharaoh's daughter that's referred to here. And so she had the she was out like laboring in the fields with the slaves or whatever, and her skin got overdone. And or does he have a wife who who won't open the door to him when he comes home at night? Is this what you picture with Solomon's great palaces? And he goes and, and one of his wives is there, and she's like, oh, I'm too, I'm too tired. And he's he's there outside, and she won't get out of bed because hey, I've already I've already gotten in bed i've cleansed my feet and everything and and then she then she says oh and she goes running around the city like okay solomon's queen right she's running around the city looking for where did he go where did he go and then the watchmen beat her up you think the watchmen are going to beat up the queen of solomon this is not this is totally unrealistic this is an allegory it's not something that is a history a literal history Does she then find him and hold him and not let him go until she takes him into her mother's house? Did she drag him off over to Egypt to go with her or wherever she lives, whatever place she came from? She had multiple wives, as you know. Does she then, and talking about multiple wives, uh, is this commended to us in the scripture that, that this woman or would any of his wives have done this, gone to other women and said, look, come and look at my husband. Come with me. Come with me. Let's go and enjoy my husband together. Enjoy his love and feel all of his love and, and, and bask in him with me. And, and they all come and they join. And she said, oh, this is great. You know, that, that's, this, this is an allegory, people. You don't want to take these things in a, in a literal way. 
And does Solomon go out to look after flocks? Is that what we know of Solomon? Was he a man that was busy out in the fields all the time? If you want to find me, I'm going to be out taking care of my sheep. Just come in and look for me there. Or, or is this about two competing lovers like the others talk about that are, are vying for this woman's attention, as the moderns say? A rustic shepherd who, who wins and the other who is Solomon. That's what they do because it doesn't fit, right? It doesn't fit with literal story. So, oh, this must be two different people. No, this is, a literal, this is not a literal story. This is an allegory about the prince of peace and the princess of peace. And that's what they're called. What better names could you give than Solomon and Shulameth? Prince of peace, princess of peace, his bride, like Christian and Christiana. It's an allegory about Christ and his church and the love that's shared between them. It is to set forth to us that experience we have with Christ as those who yearn for him and who are pursued by him, of those who have sweet communion with him and times when he comes, when, when he withdraws, it's times when he comes to us, times when he withdraws from us, and we don't know why. There's times like that in the Song of Solomon. Then there's other times when we know why, because we pushed him away, and we know that we have to go looking for him, and we come to the church, and we don't get much help, and we're, we're, we're calling, and, and we're, we're drawn to him. It shows us beautifully also his delight in us, and our delight in him, these are all things that speak very clearly into our Christian experience if we have one. It shows us beautifully these things. Marriage is the best thing to illustrate the relationship that Christ has with his people. God uses it. Our relationship is set forth by marriage in the Song of Psalms. Is an allegory. So what is our goal then in studying this book over the next few months? Well, our goal is that the Song of Songs would sing to us, that it would sing within us, that it would be our song. We study it, we meditate on it, we pray over it, we learn it. Remember, I told you, it is given to you as God's people. The word of God is for you. We want to cherish this love between us, the church, and Christ, our husband. We want our love for our master to deepen as we see how we, the church, praise him for his excellence. We learn to praise him that way. We want our sense of his love for us to deepen as we hear his love for us expressed in this song. He says to us here, I love you. A love that amazes us because it seems unfitting for we know what we are. We know of our corruption and our sin out of which he has delivered us and that still remains in us until we realize that his redemptive work is all designed so that our union with him and his bride makes us lovely. It makes us delectable to him. It makes us desirable to him. He, 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 he's pleased with us. It seems too good to be true until you stop and consider what he has done and how great his love has already been that is demonstrated to us as his bride. And we want our sense of our own love for him to deepen as well as we come to this song. There is by his grace more love for him than we sometimes realize. I mean, we have more love for him than we sometimes recognize. This psalm will help us to discover the work that he has done in us, that he has put love in us. And as his wife, that he is at work in us to make us without spot or, or wrinkle. We're growing. 
in that love. He will present us on the last day, as we saw, complete in him. All who make up the bride will be gathered together as one bride together. We will be brought to him. We want this song to sing also in all the vicissitudes of life, all the the ups and downs. We want this song to sing in our sorrows, to see in our sorrows that he loves us, to see that he comforts us, that he does not afflict us in order that, that in order, or he afflicts us in order that we might find more of him, to deepen our love. Yes, that sorrow, that it would have its perfect work, that we might grow in patience and in our character and in our hope, and most of all, in seeing his love like we've never seen it before. That's what affliction does. And we see his love for us. And then we're not so uneasy when we're afflicted. We don't think, oh, I've been rejected. If we're his bride, you haven't been rejected. He afflicts you in order that you might grow. We want this song to sing in our happiest times too. To have our pleasure in this world from his hand. Rather than in a thing, as a thing in itself disconnected from him. What Solomon said was all vanity. He had it all. To enjoy the beauty and the treasures of this world as gifts from his hand so that our joy and gratitude is strengthened instead of our heart running off after the gifts themselves and forgetting our God. What an empty thing that is. What a vain thing that is. That's what, that's what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. We want this song to sing in the mundane times, the ordinary times when there's no particular affliction and when there's no particular happiness of the world at hand just the routine of life that goes on day by day, knowing that although we're not great and we don't do anything maybe, maybe that's particularly great, that He cherishes us. He cherishes us when we're, we're washing dishes and, and, and cleaning up the floor. He pursues us and His grace abounds toward us forever. We want this song to sing, you see, in the mundane things. We want this song to sing when we fall and when we push Him off, that we will see His ever faithful love, his mercy, his readiness always to forgive and to restore, his eagerness to return to us. We want the song to sing so that we will see what we have left when we go away from him. Oh, how it benefited the bride that we read in the Song of Solomon when she does go away from him and then she can't find him for a while. He's inaccessible to her for, on purpose. Because then she thinks about how, how valuable he is and she tells everyone else about it. And then she comes to him with all the more ardor and clinging to him more than she ever did before. We want this song to sing when we're tempted so that we will not fall into sin. That we will see his love and we will wonder, how can I sin against this great God? Like Joseph, he knew the love of God. And when he went into Egypt, he was all by himself, a young man. And he had the beautiful wife of his master come and try to entice him. And he said, how can I do this great sin against God? Because he knew the love of God. Joseph would have never done that if he didn't know the love of God. He had no one to be accountable to of his people. He was all alone. It was between him and God. He never even thought that he might see his people again. Well, he sort of knew that prophetically, but we want to sing this song In the morning when we start our day, we want this song to be in us of the love of God. And we want this song to sing in us at the end of the day. At night when we go to rest to see 
the care and protection that, that he has had for us and to, to retire with, with gratitude and thanksgiving and delight in him. And rising in the morning, not with anxiety about the day, but with a delight that our Savior is with us again. The song of love that we will go out, as it talks about going out into the, the fields with Him and going and doing our work with Him, feeding the sheep, doing whatever we're doing with Him. We want this song to sing when we are engaged in the spiritual battle, when we're overwhelmed and we feel that our strength is at an end. We want this song to sing. We want to see how He comes to uphold us, how He comes leaping across the mountains, and how we lean upon Him coming up out of the wilderness. His love is our husband to strengthen us and cheer us as we prepare to persevere and to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold on eternal life. We want this song to sing to us in all of our relationships, that as we interact with others, it might be as His princess who is fruitful and who brings encouragement and hope and grace to pour into the balms of those that are wounded around us and to be fruitful and bring others that do not know Him to know Him and our brothers and sisters to encourage them that that this is the God who loves us, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that He is our husband and that we delight in Him. Yes, indeed, we not only want this song to sing in us We want it to sing in others, to come and enjoy Him with us. As we saw, that's an unusual thing with this kind of a relationship. The bride is not one person made up of many people together. One bride, but of many people. We want this song to sing in our brothers and sisters then who already know Christ. The dear people who make up His bride, who so often do not cherish His love the way they might. As I was preparing this sermon, I prayed for each member of the congregation that they might, this song might be in their heart as they, they trudge along sometimes in their weariness and their, their fears and their overwhelming, being overwhelmed with life, that they would know that this song would sing today. That as they come to the table, that the song would sing. We want this song to sing in our spouse and in our marriage. Surely looking at this relationship that's under the allegory of marriage, will do much to enrich our marriages. Wives will want to be like His church, submitting to their husbands as the church does to Christ, pursuing them, pursuing their husband, and showing respect and honor to Him and delight in Him. And husbands will want to be like Christ, pouring out their lives for their wives, pursuing them, leaping across the mountains to come to them and to minister to them and to love them and constantly winning them. We want this song to sing in our children and in our homes that the love of Christ will permeate us so that it flows out as perfume and fills our home and makes it beautiful with the savor of Jesus Christ, that others may behold and see the love that is there that we have for one another. We want this song to sing in our Christian leaders and in their ministry. What could you want more than an elder in an elder than true love for Christ in that man? For a sense of an elder to have that sense of his love for his people and to be able to minister that to you. Or what more would you want than a parent in a parent than for that parent to know Christ and to be interested in bringing you to him in whom alone we have eternal life and salvation. 
Oh, that our children would, go, would not go loping along as those who are beaten down and unloved and discouraged, but as those rather who have a Redeemer, whose Redeemer, whose husband is their Redeemer. We want this song to sing in our lost friends and relations. We yearn to tell them of his great love that he would open their heart to receive the gospel the way he opened Lydia's heart when Paul spoke to her, to see what they're missing, to see how they're alienated by sin and how that they can have all in Christ. Yes, we want our community to know him and to know his grace for this song to sing all through our city. And we want this song to sing all across our land. And we want this song to sing in all the world that the world would be filled with a new song, the way that Psalm 96 or Psalm 98 speak of. You can see in all of this that it is not so much a song that we sing. It is not given to us in the Psalter as a song for us to sing, but it's a song that sings in us, a song that sings to us. It's not really appropriate to sing about the glory of the bride in all the way that this does. We do that. Some, in the, some of the Psalms we talk about, we're going to have one like that today that we sing, uh, Psalm 112. I believe it's in the afternoon service. But uh, it's, this song isn't given to us to sing in the assembly of God's people. It's given to sing in us as His people. It's the song of songs. It's the song of the Prince of Peace and the love that is between Him and the Princess of Peace, His bride. All who have come to him for salvation. Question, are you among them? Do you know the prince of peace? Are you his princess, the princess of peace? If not, then what is keeping you? Come to him. Sin is no barrier. Come to him with all of your sin. He died to atone for your sin. He died to take away your sin. Come to him with your sin and he will pardon you. Come to Him with your broken life and ask Him to restore you to Him so that you can live for Him forever. His love is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. The Prince of Peace has a song that is His and His bride because of His great love that brought Him to redeem her by the cross and to take her in. Come to Him and let the music begin in you. And if it has begun... Let this song swell. Let it grow more and more and more. Look to God that He may bring refreshment of His grace and His love to you that you may know the depth and height and breadth and width and length of that love. I think we all need this. Let's ask God. Please stand. Oh Lord, we come to you in our weakness, recognizing that this great song that you have given to us sometimes can almost be, it can seem unrealistic. It can seem like it's talking about someone else, somewhere else. But Father, we praise you that it is our song that is given to us in the Scripture. It's just as much the song of a single person as a married person, as a child, as an adult. It's a song that you have given to your people. 
It's about a relationship that we all have if we are in Christ Jesus. Whether adult who has professed their faith or a child that is born in the covenant. We thank you and praise you, O Lord, that we can all know this song. And we praise you that you have given this song that we might know what this song talks about more and more fully and deeply. It's not a song that we have a tune for. It's a song that we want to sing in our lives every day. The love of Christ for his bride and our love for him. This is the whole of man, as Solomon told us. It's interesting in our Bibles. Ecclesiastes ends with the whole duty of man to keep his commandments. And of course, we know the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. He says, this is the whole of man. This is what man is all about. And then he says, very next page, this is the song of songs, which is Solomon's. We praise you, O Lord, that it is about that very thing, that that love. Yes, it is our duty to love God. But we praise you that the Lord Jesus made it his duty and that he came here and became one of us and he loved you and he brings us into that love and he loves us and he changes us. He shapes us. He gives us his spirit. Like John the Baptist said of him, he is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. As we saw a few weeks ago, the Spirit is the one who, who we're sprinkled by the Spirit. And, and then we have a new record. All the sin is washed away. All that's on our account, all that stands against us, washed completely off the record. And then we have a new heart that is given to us. A heart that, that delights in your ways. A heart that seeks you. A heart that cries out for you when you are far away. A heart that yearns for you. A heart that delights in you. And Father, then that brings a new life. A life where we walk through the fields with you together, where Eden is restored, where we walk with our Lord in the the coolness of the day, where we fellowship, where we receive and where we give, where we bring others in with us, Lord, not a lonely existence, but a very communal existence between us and you and us and others in you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to enjoy all of these, all of the blessedness of this relationship, that we would, we would explore it, that we would examine this song, that we would look at it this way and that way, and that more and more it would become our own, that it would become part of us, that it would be found singing in us day after day after day, ever singing more and more and more in sweeter and sweeter harmony. Father, it is a song that we could never exhaust in this world. I remember some 30 years ago, or was it, is it 40 now? 40 years ago when I came to the Lord and my friends told me that it would only be for a time and I would be back to my old self. How wrong they were. And I praise you, O Lord, that that is true for your people. That this song continues to expand and increase. I feel that I've only begun to get to know it in the last few years. And yet it was there all along. It was there singing, just silent, very quietly, very lowly. But Father, we pray that this song would would have a louder voice in our lives, that it would have a fuller place, a fuller permeation, a richness and a fullness. Father, that we wouldn't be strangers to this music, this song that 
none but the redeemed can learn. Oh, Father, fill us. Fill us with all of your fullness. We ask you, Lord, bless us even now as we continue this worship service. We're coming to the table. What do we want here? We want to feed. We want to be filled. We want the the Lamb of God to come leaping across the mountains to come and visit us here. We want Him to, to be with us, to minister to us, to kiss us. So, Lord, we ask you to bring your full and rich blessing to us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Marriage is a wonderful thing indeed, isn't it? In marriage, love has the potential to reach its highest earthly level. It has the potential to do that. It doesn't always do that, but it has the potential. But far more excellent is the marriage that we have with Christ our Maker. Here is love that is unsurpassed the subject of the Song of Songs. We come to the table rightly when we come to remember our husband and his great love and what he has done for us as our husband. When he came for us, when he came as our champion, when we were in bondage, when we were lost and ruined, and he came to lift us up out of the mire. We do the best when we remember how he laid down his life for us. When we don't forget that we were cleansed from our sins. It would be one thing if we were righteous and he did what he did. But he did this even though we were the opposite of righteous. Guilty, defiled, sinful, unclean, reprehensible, polluted. In fact, it was because we were so guilty and so sinful, and so defiled, that it was necessary for him to come and do what he did on the cross, what is represented here at this table, what is set before us every time we come to this table. We do well to remember our husband and what he has done for us. But that's not all that is seen of his great love. It is also that he who is so high above us as God even if we were perfectly righteous, that he should take notice of us, that he should even care about us as his creatures, that he would actually cherish and delight in us, that he would do that at all for us, even if we were perfect, but yet mere creatures. And yet he he does it even though we're sinners. His delight in us is set forth so powerfully in the Song of Solomon that it can make the song seem unreal to us. But it's not unreal. This is truth. This is reality. He really does love us. And he really does delight in us. How do I know that? Well, not just because of the song. The song is to poetically talk about I know that because of what he did. He demonstrated his love for us. This way. 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ gave himself for us. His body broken for us. His blood shed for the remission of our sins. This is how he demonstrates his love. So all that the Song of Solomon talks about is true. This delight that he has in us, this love that he has for us, he would not have done that if he did not love us so. We have demonstrable proof of it right here. This is covenantal, brothers and sisters. There are promises associated here. Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation in him. We have life. All things are passed away. All things are become new. There is the light that he has in us. And it is represented right here. His actions prove this to us. The Song of Solomon is not exaggerating about his love and his delight for us. Let's come to this table then, considering what he has done for us and considering his great love. Hear the words of institution from the apostle. For I received from the Lord. Isn't it wonderful that God gave this to Paul to give to us? I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. How is it that he has taken us who are his enemies to be not only his friends, but his very bride? Come to this table with thanksgiving and praise. Come with a desire that this song of love would resound in your heart and in the hearts of your brothers and sisters, in the heart of the church, that you'd have a greater sense of this love than you have had heretofore, that you would have a greater delight in this love, and that you'd have more love for him. Look to him to help you. We come to feed. We come for help. We come for nourishment from the one that deeply loves us. Look to him. But if you are, but you are not to come unless you are a communicant member in good standing. You need to be one who has been baptized, one who has professed your faith, and who has continued in fellowship of the church in good standing. You see, he says here, the apostle says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, 
not discerning the Lord's body. We come here looking to feed upon our master. Let's then ask him to to bless us as we prepare. Gracious Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit of God, we come to you with great thanksgiving for it is you, the triune God, who decreed that we would be saved, that we would be the bride of Christ, that we would be taken into his house forever, that we would be those who are married to him, that we would be the children to our Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit would be the one who dwells within us. O oh Lord, how we pray that, that you would enrich us in our love for, the, for our husband, for our father, and for the Holy Spirit who nourishes us and changes us. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would come to this table eager to have these things through Christ our husband, the one who came as our hero, the one who came to conquer, the one who came to destroy Satan and his works, to set us free, to deliver us from bondage, to redeem us from slavery, slavery to sin and death, to give us life, eternal life. We pray, Lord, that we would come with gladness to this one who loves us so much, whose love is demonstrated by what he did, by what is represented to us right here, body broken, blood shed. Lord, this is amazing that you should even have a body and blood, for you do not have them until you took them in order to come and do this very thing. You came to give your life a ransom for your bride that you love, to redeem her, to win her to cherish her. We thank you, O Lord, that you will never forsake us, that you will keep us, you will keep us to the end, and then you'll present us to your Father without spot or blemish to live in glory forever and ever. Lord, we desire these things. We desire to grow in our love for you, to cherish you more, and that you would continue to express your delight to us that we might know it, that we might understand it, for we're, we're dark, Lord, We do not see so clearly. Help us, O Lord, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Amen.